Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen I. Kimmer. And back in studio with us once again today is Sarah Partial Perry, a senior legal fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you. You know I love doing this show. Well, I feel a little bit bad sharing this information. I feel like I'm ruining so many millennials' love of avocados in the past week. But last week, I was in Arizona reporting on the crisis at the southern border, and I met with several farmers. And I learned from one of those farmers that the cartels control the avocado market in Mexico. Oh. Which, as an avocado lover, I was pretty devastated to hear because now I can no longer buy avocados or pay extra for that uh, guacamole at Chipotle. Hopes and dreams. Yes. So um, look, look at your avocados, ladies. Make sure that they're coming from California, mm-hmm. from maybe Peru. But don't yeah, I was going to say, where else Mexico? do they grow avocados? Because I feel like Mexico and Mexican food yeah. in general is where we, we get all that. So yeah. they grow they grow in Africa, but I think that's probably a lot more expensive to bring yeah, them over probably. here from Africa than it is from South America. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we need more avocado trees now in California. I mean, you can always do that little science experiment where you, you like put the little tooth pick thingies and you grow the avocado seed in a cup of water maybe maybe that's something oh, that we start doing that. we're gonna try that in the office Christine. yeah uh, next time i'll just bring an avocado seed in and we'll do that perfect let's yeah. go for as it. somebody who has kids and who has undertaken that science experiment <laughs> let me tell you prepare to be disappointed ladies oh, okay well hopes we'll, and dreams we'll have to report Rushed. back <laughs> all right Kristen, go ahead let us know what we have queued up on today's show For sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, we explain the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and how President Biden's bailout to all depositors is really just helping one class of people. Plus, Mayor Eric Adams is now telling New Yorkers to remove their masks. Also on today's show, a Vermont Christian school women's basketball team is banned from competing in future tournaments after forfeiting a game against a team with trans students. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Silicon Valley Bank has collapsed, but... President Joe Biden says that Americans should still feel confident in the U.S. banking system. Here's what he had to say just the other day per ABC News. Look, the bottom line is this. Americans can rest assured that our banking system is safe. Your deposits are safe. So Biden gave these remarks at the White House on Monday, and the president explained that the government is going to ensure depositors don't lose their money, even though Silicon Valley Bank has folded. So in other words, whether you had $100 or a million dollars sitting in Silicon Valley Bank, Biden says the FDIC, which is short for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is going to insure the money that was in that bank. You're not going to lose your money. Um, Now, this is not totally uncommon, but in the other sense, it is very uncommon. So The FDIC insures deposits in banks up to $250,000 so that if a bank folds, small businesses, individuals, they're protected because most 
people, most normal people, don't have more than $250,000 sitting in one account in a bank. Um, these are, are larger companies, larger businesses, or the extremely, extremely wealthy. Um, but one way or another, it's not a good idea as an individual to have that much money in one account, if you didn't know that, 101. Um, but what the Biden administration is now doing is saying, regardless of the amount, all Silicon Valley bank deposits, they're covered. And Biden says the cost of the bank losses won't be borne by the American taxpayer, but the majority of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank exceeded that $250,000 mark. Gee, I can't imagine if there are any corporations in Silicon <laughs> Valley with more than $250,000 in what a bank. Huh. <laughs> Would that be potentially problematic? <laughs> I don't know. Just a bit. Uh, so where exactly is the money going to come from is my question with with essentially, uh, you know, the bank itself is not being bailed out. The bank is folding, but the bailouts are going to individuals and businesses, essentially. So what will happen if the FDIC fund runs out, if it runs dry? Let's say that five more banks fold within the next year. Well, now the expectation is, doesn't matter the amount, the Biden administration will cover it. And so if that fund runs out, then the FDIC, they go to the Treasury Department and they say, hey, we've been bailing all these individuals out. We've been covering their deposits. Now we need more money. So the Treasury Department says, okay, they would give them more money. Whose money is that? It's taxpayer money. So yes, right now, the Biden administration is correct. No taxpayer money is going to this, but it's it's a slippery slope and it's a dangerous position to really significantly drain the funds of the FDIC. And you have to ask, who exactly are the winners and losers in this situation? Well, Peter St. Onge, who is an economics fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and that's um, our parent organization, has said there is no place for this to go except toward more inflation. Now, we've already dealt with record inflation under this administration because this is the quintessential tax and spend horse and pony show. The Biden administration loves to spend American taxpayer money, and the average American is currently worried about the price of gas and the price of milk. And again, as someone who has kids, let me tell you, I am feeling the pinch at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Even just in eggs and milk, the real-world impact for inflation is something that's impossible to ignore. One bailout, I understand it. We don't want the entire tech sector collapsing. Understood. Two bailouts, well, now you have a problem. Because mm -hmm. as you said, Virginia, you have no place to go but back to the Treasury Department to print more money. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a trend that we're seeing, not just with banks, but, I mean, in general spending. We're spending a lot of money. We're sending billions overseas. But to your point, what's very scary about the banking situation and our banking system in, in general is – Great, we have all of these regulations that ensure individuals that don't have more than $250,000. In this case, they have pivoted to back up bigger companies for whatever reason. Um, and yes, Biden is saying none of this will cost the taxpayer any money. Um, obviously, like you just said, that's not the case. Eventually, it's going to cost us a lot of money, kind of like with the, the stimulus checks. What's also scary, um, EJ Antonia, another um, brilliant economic fellow here at Heritage Foundation, pointed out is... Biden pointed to bank fees paying for 
the redistribution of these funds and kind of just um, the buildup of these funds again to ensure depositors can access their money again. And what fees on banks are going to be passed along uh, but to the the users and customers of those banks. Um, We're going to start seeing more increases, maybe more fees. Um, In the State of the Union, Biden pointed out that he wanted to cut all of these different fees, but he is also in the process of saying that creating this environment where banks are are being enabled to charge customers more. And and it just, I don't know, it gets confusing. You're kind of like in a spiraling identity crisis of what are you actually saying? Do you stand for, you know, cutting costs to taxpayers and customers or, or not? And I think in this policy, it's not only confusing, but also just not efficient. And let's put some real world numbers on this. The creditors, the investors, those who had accounts at SVB tried to withdraw $42 billion worth of deposits. Mm -hmm. So that's how much the FDIC is backing right now. Mm -hmm. This is not a small amount of money. $42 billion once, okay, understand, again, don't want the entire tech sector collapsing. But twice, if we're talking about billions with a B for one of the largest sectors in the American economy, this could become a pattern that's going to have absolutely catastrophic economic consequences for our country. Yeah. And it, I mean, sorry, Virginia, no, but last no, year, <laughs> sorry, I love banking. Um, <laughs> last year, uh, Clara's group reported um, at the end of last year that $620 billion in accumulated losses in security portfolios in the banking industry alone were reported. And I just want to take a second to see how we got here with the SVB, mm-hmm. um, the fallout. And for those not super familiar with the banking system, um, when you deposit money into the bank, you're doing that and you're going to be able to you know, run to Chase and, and pull out $20 um, whenever you need to. But the only reason that's possible is because the bank is making money by also loaning your money to other people and having an interest rate attached to that that then makes the bank more money. That's yep. largely why borrowing for a house, you're, we're, we're paying attention to interest rates. Um, and that's really how the, the banks are making money. The problem here and with this environment is that with a startup bank like this, investors are not giving startups as much money and VCs don't have as much money. So they're pulling from those accounts a lot more than they were in the past. Mm-hmm. But not only that, the bank is then forced to liquefy and lose lose money because all of those investments have been in bonds or have been, you know, loaned to people that are then paying them back at that interest rate to create more money. Um, and there's a level of risk there. And here it didn't pay out because mm-hmm. they're liquefying it, losing, I believe it was 28% was lost through this whole process of the liquidation and then paying of these depositors amounts. And that ultimately is what led to this fall. And this is not unique, like I said. Last year, we saw the the $620 billion in losses. It is only going to get worse. And the scariest part about all of this, um, I majored in econ, it is all consumer behavior. Like So this could spur future stressors. Um, this could, could go to different sectors. Um, there's a lot that we don't know. And the fact that the Biden administration isn't taking this seriously and kind of saying, we can play with money. It's all monopoly money. It is absolutely not. We need to start being accountable and start spending responsibly. I mean, I would hate to see the Biden's credit card amount because I'm sure that it's not. <laughs> it probably doesn't like match this. the average American. Yeah. But, uh, no, Kristen, I thank you so much for breaking that down because it's really helpful to hear how this happened that, um, you know, when when we saw interest rates going up and then this bank made poor investments with the money that they had in their accounts, 
Uh, word got out, people got nervous, and that created the run on the bank that we saw that led to this fold. Um, but the situation here, um, Sarah, you mentioned Peter St. Ong. I, I just spoke with him recently on the Daily Signal podcast, and he said, he said, if you are a bank, you will always make more money lending out riskier loans, buying riskier things. That is an iron rule of Wall Street. And so if we move into a world where the government is bailing out everybody, no matter how risky they were, we are inviting financial panic after financial panic. And I think that is the concern because, yes, you know, so far, so far, so good. <laughs> but I think everyone feels a little bit on pins and needles right mm-hmm. now. And, and I did ask Peter St. Ong, I said, you know, is our money safe in our banks? And he said, yes, you know, don't don't go pull your money out of your bank. Money is safe in the banks right now. But like we've talked about, the most likely result of this situation is going to be higher inflation. And that brings with it all sorts of factors that we're just in some ways right now waiting to see yeah. how exactly this plays out. Oh, man, banking. <laughs> we don't cover banking too much on this podcast, so I was glad to get into it a little bit this yeah, week. Yeah, it's definitely kinda, interesting. Kind of interesting. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, another hot-button issue that's a little bit different. Uh, masks are still a thing of conversation. I'm starting to wonder why. It's 2023. <laughs> why are we still talking about masks? But people are still talking about masks, and we're going to explain why in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news and keep up with the issues that I care about. If you're anything like me, you enjoy researching interesting topics on YouTube or simply just being entertained. But sometimes it's really hard to find information that's well-researched and trustworthy on YouTube. And that is where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the issues that you care about and give you all the data and the facts in a really succinct way. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. So go ahead, if you haven't already, and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so you never miss out on all of that information and the facts in an entertaining way that you actually care about. So... You know, the city that has Wall Street and all these banks is actually uh, seeing new guidance from their mayor, Eric Adams. Um, He's requiring that stores ensure customers remove their masks before entering their places of business. This new mask mandate aims to stop the spread of crime and protect the safety of vulnerable store workers. Mayor Adams continued to explain last week or earlier this week, actually, that while this new policy requires that workers prohibit people from entering their stores without taking off their masks, once inside stores, customers can continue wearing their masks. This change in policy comes after the city has experienced a huge spike in robberies. In the last year, New York Police Department data showed robberies increased from 13,800 robberies in 2021 to over 17,400. Despite pushback, Adams leaned on these stats to rationalize new mask regulations, explaining that when you see these mask-wearing people, oftentimes it's not about being fearful of the pandemic. It's a fear of the police catching them for their deeds. In a city that still believes the pandemic is not over, although I am pretty sure it is, <laughs> we are starting to see how COVID-era policies are impacting non-health-related areas of society. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like this is kind of a reality check. But what do you guys think of this new policy? And um, is it actually going to help stop crime? No, it's not. <laughs> and like so much of the COVID-era guidance, this is what happens when you cede individual rights to government authority. Mm-hmm. So now you find that 
there are conflicting and sort of contradictory notions of what's happening with these masks. And Kristen, you said rightly so that these are impacting non-health related decisions. Yes, they are. And in fact, this has touched on so many different aspects of American cultural life. I mean, we saw the impact in employment. We saw the impact in healthcare. We saw the impact now in retail shopping. Um, we saw the impact in churches, in get togethers. We saw guidance out of California that was telling us we couldn't get together for family reunions. I mean, this, this truly is the ridiculousness of what happens when you are forced to toe the line on what we are now learning was a party policy. What we saw coming out of the federal government is now being contradicted. Remember, it was all the wet market. And now we're realizing <laughs> that, yes, we've got two governmental agencies and a third probably on the way saying, huh, just kidding. It looks like based on later research, it was indeed a lab leak. Uh, you think the State Department actually indicated in a six month review prior to when the leak occurred that there were security risks, that there was potentially the likelihood of a risk. Nobody was talking about the State Department report. And then suddenly we have an epidemic. We have the COVID <laughs> pandemic. So I've, I've gone a bit far afield. But the, <laughs> the circular reasoning on this is that we saw everything from vaccine mandates recognizing now that the vaccine was not effective in preventing COVID and that natural immunity is actually a better barrier. And we're now seeing mass guidance that's saying, okay, so masks are good, but take them off so we can see you're not a criminal and then put them back on. Really? Because in that period of time, COVID's going to disappear for the yeah. 30 seconds you can walk in under a security cam. It's ridiculous. No, and to your point, I it was also used, uh, we've talked about it on the show, but the, the mail-order abortions, I feel like that was a large part COVID was used for. Oh, so yes. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how they're using it as a scapegoat or an excuse or a, a trump card, if you will, um, to, to like really pass things or make excuses for cities and crime and poor policies that they just don't have any control of. Well, and remember that the Supreme Court has had quite a bit to say on the use of law that was not supported by this administration. We saw, for example, the CDC eviction moratorium where the Biden administration said, okay, we're going to pause rent. We're going to pause mortgage when you can't evict anyone from their home. And they used the CDC to do it. The Supreme Court very clearly said, oh, no, the authority is not present in the federal statute you think it is. We saw a national vaccine mandate. Again, the Supreme Court said, no, it's not present in the law that you've actually used to support this. Time and again, the Supreme Court said repeatedly, these are pretextual bases. You are spreading into areas of law that have nothing to do with the public health. That is a state's right issue. And you're a essentially nationalizing this particular, not only this particular health care policy, but now we learn again this national narrative on what COVID was and actually wasn't. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that this whole situation just highlights how broken governments like New York City are. 
that you see these really extreme hopping on the bandwagon. We'll make everyone wear masks everywhere and you can't go into a restaurant unless you have a vaccine card. And then, oh, wait a second, criminals are taking advantage of a mask mandate and they don't have to show their faces. So we can't pick that up on security cameras. Okay, how do we correct that? I mean, it it's really, it, it's sad. If it wasn't so sad, it would be humorous. Uh, but I feel for people who live in New York City who... <laughs> want to not be fearful of their homes being broken into and who would like to go out to eat without, you know, having to put on or off a mask or follow all of these certain procedures, whatever that day uh, the the leaders, the far left leaders has deemed is, you know, the quote unquote right thing to be doing. Uh, it's just it's I think we've seen this play out so many times in well, so many different far left cities in America. And and when you actually see far left Hollywood mm-hmm. admitting that maybe perhaps some of these policies were a little extreme, when you see Tilda Swinton, who is an avowed lefty mm-hmm. at South by Southwest, talking about her future movie that she's going to film in Ireland and saying distinctly, yeah, I'm not wearing a mask on that set and pointing to the audience and saying, and you guys are not wearing masks either. So there has to come a point where some of this stuff stops. Yeah, At yeah. what point do we all say, okay, can we just quit it with this ridiculousness yeah. about yeah, the I, entire I have to COVID applaud narrative? Her for just being out front. Absolutely. She was, I mean, as, as a lefty, she was taking a risk to put her foot down, but I love that she was like, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. But we need more of that. We and do. Like, so my parents actually, they went to Ireland and the hotel tried to, you know, have them show their Vax cards. And it's, Kind of like I don't even think I would have brought that with me to Europe because I'm not thinking about that anymore. So it's cool to see influential figures like that really putting their foot down like you guys said. It is. All right. Well, our next story takes us a little further north from New York City up to the state of Vermont. So a Christian school basketball team has been banned from competing in future tournaments after the school forfeited a game against a team with a male student who claims to be transgender. So let's rewind to February. The mid-Vermont Christian School girls basketball team pulled out of a game in the girls' state basketball playoffs. The head of school, Vicki Fogg, told Fox Digital that the school chose uh, to pull out of the tournament uh, because we believe playing against an opponent with A biological male jeopardizes the fairness of the game and the safety of our players. So the headmaster then also added that allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general. But now, Vermont Principals Association has banned the Christian school from future tournaments because the school would not allow their girls to play against a team with a male on the team. The Vermont Principal Association said in a statement that it supports transgender student-athletes and said Vermont state law gives transgender students the right to play on the team that they choose. So, Sarah, you are our resident expert on all of this, especially, of course, the legal side. Do Vermont laws allow students to play on their team of choice regardless of whether they are men or women? Well, Under Title IX, and until we get a brand new spanking, graphically catastrophic upside-down rule from the Biden administration on Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, all girls are supposed to be provided equal opportunity in all educational contexts that are federally funded. This is a public 
School Association. Now, this is a Christian school. Mm -hmm. There is a religious exemption under Title IX. So these particular girls at this Christian school are allowed to play against other girls, even though the Biden administration has said, well, we also mean biological men who believe that they're girls. Unfortunately, Vermont, not known for its conservative policies, <laughs> and there is actually no Fairness and Women's Sports Act on the books. And that's something we're seeing coming out of a lot of these states who are seeing the writing on the wall and saying, May or June, when we see this new rule come out from the Biden administration that turns Title IX upside down and defines sex as gender identity, a lot of these states are rushing to pass these laws because they want to protect the interests of girls and young women who really have no opportunity now under educational programs. They are going to be housed with men. They're going to share sports teams with men, compete against men, share bathrooms and locker rooms and housing accommodations with men. That takes the purpose of Title IX, which was to prevent sex discrimination completely on its head. So in Vermont, these poor young women, and God bless that principal who mm -hmm. said, you know what, we're going to take a stand on this. Yeah. Everyone else is towing the line on this nonsense of gender identity, and it is nonsense. I don't care if Drew Barrymore gets down on her knee in front <laughs> oh of Dylan. I do not Dylan care. What I care about is that we understand that biology and chromosomal makeup are immutable, and that's what defines womanhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, the logic here is very fascinating. The logic that was used by the Vermont Principals Association to ban this Christian school from competing in future women's basketball tournaments, I mean, it, it's almost like the same logic, right, as, as I going up there saying I identify as a high school student and enrolling and being like, well, I should be allowed to play because I identify as a 17-year-old and I want to play on the high school basketball team. I mean, it, it seems like it's the same thing, right? Oh, oh, it's very much the same thing. And I'm going to tell you, unfortunately, that's where we're headed. Netflix, for example, right now has a documentary called The Rachel Divide. It is about the story of Rachel Dolezal, remember, who rose to the highest of the ranks at the NAACP, turns out, totally Caucasian. Not an ounce of black blood whatsoever. But she felt as though she was African-American. Mm -hmm. That is where we are going. What was the purpose of the Civil Rights Act? What was that entire purpose, if not to protect the interests of individuals who, because of their immutable characteristics, that is the Supreme Court's term, those, quote, accidents of birth that cannot be changed? If it wasn't to protect them, if all we have to do is say we're one thing mm -hmm. and we get the protection that's always been relegated for those particularly marginalized populations, uh, where do we go from there? Mm -hmm. Then everyone's a victim, isn't yep. it? Yep. Everyone's marginalized. Everyone's a victim. And you're setting up in every classroom, in every public accommodation, every cake baking shop, every wedding vendor, every public school, a battle royale between one discriminated population and another one. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to go but down. It's funny because I just, yeah, the marginalized group.
I feel as though I largely am not in any of those. Um, you know, I am a woman, but you know, Caucasian, all of those things, I don't sure. get to check that, um, the diversity box really that much. But this really just has hit home for me because, again, I, I mean, I played soccer, um, very physical sport. Basketball is a little less physical, but still, you guys can get in, into each other's faces and really uh, get hurt when you're playing against men. And I just, as you guys were talking, remember, you know, playing against guys in soccer and, and thinking to myself, thank God I'm not doing this every day because I'm getting bruised. I'm getting kicked. And these men are stronger than me because biologically, the science makes them that way. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you Just don't fact. feel marginalized because you've always had the benefit of Title Nine, right. right? Right. So passed in 1972, never gone through any modification that would make it harder for you in any federally funded educational program, including sports programs. So yeah. you've realized those benefits. I have a daughter on a varsity volleyball team. I played varsity softball. I I've always understood and appreciated the value of Title IX. These are generations of women who've benefited from that federal law. All of that is about to be undone. Mm -hmm. And we are about to be relegated 50 years backward in our personal history if this rule is finally complete. Wow. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. We love having you on, of course, to bring that legal expertise and a little bit of spiciness. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, you guys. But stay tuned because up next, we are crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct, designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Virginia Hall. So we're not just giving the crown to Virginia Hall since we share the same first name. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good name. I mean, <laughs> I feel like that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe a little biased, but so it is the month of March, which is also Women's History Month. So we wanted to take a little bit of time in the month of March to talk about some of the amazing women in history who have done incredible things, especially some of those women that maybe you haven't heard a lot about. So Virginia Hall was a spy during World War II, and she has a pretty incredible story. Um, and I want to I want to share a bit of her biography with you all on the show today. So this is all credit to intelligence.org. They have a great bio on Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall had a knack for languages and finding adventure. After attending college and graduate school at top universities in the U.S., she went on to study and travel in Europe in the early 1930s, eventually taking a clerical position with the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw, Poland. Her next assignment took her to Izmir, Turkey, where she was in a serious hunting accident and lost her left leg below the knee. 
She was fitted with a wooden prosthetic leg, which she affectionately nicknamed Cupbert. She's, I know, I think that's so funny. So I was like, cute. I feel like I would do the same thing yeah. if I had a prosthetic leg. You <laughs> give it a name. <laughs> She'd always dreamed of working in the Foreign Service, but when she applied a few years after the accident, she was informed that only the able bodied need apply. Paul was determined not to let her prosthetic leg limit get in the way of her desire to serve her country overseas. So she was like James Bond, essentially. Pretty much. The female James Bond, but, but with, with one it, leg. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, instead of doing it in heels, she's doing it in one leg and maybe heels. Yeah. That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So not long after that, not long after she kind of took this assignment overseas with Europe newly entered into World War II, Hall was accepted by... By the British Special Operations Executive, which was called SOE, and they gave her extensive training in clandestine tradecraft, communications, weapons, and other resistance activities. She spent 13 months in France in 1941 to 42, organizing spy networks, running safe houses, and delivering important intelligence to the British government all while staying one step ahead of the Gestapo, who they called her the limping lady. She fled France just one step ahead of her would-be captors and ultimately joined the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. And they sent her back to France in 1944, where she again took up the cause of resistance. In 1945, Hall was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for her heroic actions during the war. And she continued intelligence work for the CIA after the war and retired in 1966. But wow, like talk about someone that you don't necessarily learn about in school, but who was incredible and played this amazing behind-the-scenes role yeah. of intelligence, of spying in World War II. Well, what's interesting, too, is, um, first of all, love the pun, all while staying one step ahead of the Gestapo, who <laughs> called her the limping lady. Like, yeah. are you joking? Who wrote this? But um, what's cool is um, a lot of times, I'm sure, they saw her footsteps or, or like, those people that were tracking her, probably, mm-hmm. and because of her gait, because of the the significant identifying feature of having only part of one leg, they probably knew this was all one lady, which yeah. is so cool because it's one thing to be a spy. It's another thing to be kind of, again, like James Bond, where they know who you are. They have mm-hmm. no idea your identity, but they know it's the same person, you know, breaking people out of prison, collecting intel, doing all of this stuff. Like, what a, a crazy, awesome woman. Yeah. <laughs> Problematic woman. Problematic woman in <laughs> Indeed. Well, hey, if if you know of women in history who you think have not gotten enough recognition for what they've done, DM us on the Problematic Women Instagram account because we really throughout Women's History Month want to highlight some of these problematic ladies who we just really want to shine a light on for everything that they've done. And if you would be interested in learning a little bit more about Virginia Hall, there's actually, I know there there's a podcast that I listened to on her, and then there's a movie called A Call to Spy that came out in 2019. So if you haven't seen that movie, good weekend plans. But with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. So we would very much appreciate you taking just a few minutes to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, wherever you like to listen. Have a great week.
Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.